You're listening to the Slavic Literature Pod, your shelf-help guide to all things Slavic. I'm Matt Garrison-Mobich, PhD candidate at Northwestern University studying Russian literature and film. And I'm Cameron Lalana, a literature enthusiast and a guy working in media. This is the podcast for people who want to learn more about Slavic literature, art, and culture. Every episode, we're going to be bringing you the background and analysis you'll need to know and understand these works. If you're interested in supporting us, you can head on over to our website, slaviclitpod.com. All right, Matt, what are we getting into this week? This week, the first film kind of covered on the podcast. The first film is such covered on the podcast. We've done uh, adaptation, but now we're doing uh, just film film. We're going to be talking about Andrei Zvyagintsev's Leviathan, the 2014 film that, uh, you know, took Cannes by storm, took a bunch of other film festivals by storm. I was looking at just on Wikipedia, I think, in the accolade section. I think it won, like, more than half, close to, like, two-thirds of the awards it was nominated for, which is a pretty, pretty good sweep up, if you ask me. Right, yeah. I mean, it did well for itself. Yeah, not, not too bad. Right. And uh, I'm excited to get into Leviathan. Uh, anyone who's ever been in Slavic studies in college except for matt somehow has had to yeah. i feel like has had to watch leviathan like three or four times over uh so i'm excited to talk about it but also excited to talk about it because you uh spoke about this in another podcast not too long ago a month or two back i think maybe two months back yeah i was on dan benamore's watch this tonight where we talked about leviathan and i had so much more i wanted to talk about and so i said hey we can talk about it on my podcast too but you should be able to listen to Dan's podcast in the show notes. It'll be linked. We had a good conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So, Leviathan, uh, before we get into talking about the film itself, let's give a little bit of background on on our director here, or more specifically, where our director is taking inspiration from for this film, because it's uh, it's an interesting one. It's, a, it's an incident from the American canon, actually. Yeah, Cameron's going to try to come at me for not having watched this in my program, but <laughs> I was the one who told him what it was really about <laughs> this is true i did not i did not know about this until matt brought it up to me so that's <laughs> turnabout's fair play <laughs> yes so jagensev gets his inspiration from the 2004 incident shall we call it in in the u.s where marvin Hemeyer uh rampaged through a small u.s town using a modified bulldozer that he poured concrete on uh to secure himself this was after a sort of uh land dispute with the government or they're trying to uh what do you call it not public domain is land oh um, uh eminent domain eminent is domain land. yeah mm-hmm. there you go. i tried to public domain is land it was for <laughs> <everybody>. <laughs> <laughs> um and he, he he didn't he didn't didn't like that so he went on a uh, complete rampage and it didn't end super well for him he ended up killing himself inside the tank after he pretty much crashed into a hole more or less and uh yeah so that's what this incident is <laughs> it inspires it inspires leviathan and zvagansev said that he wanted to try to adapt it to a sort of russian context but so i think it'll be interesting to look at in what in what ways the small man versus the government is sort of this universal theme that transcends nearly all cultures right i think it's funny that we take uh we, we take this uh I'll, I'll roughly call it an american incident of this guy going on a rampage this i think this typical american obsession with violence over you know a wrongdoing done to you and then we have Zviagintsev saying how do we make this russian all right so this guy's wife cheats on him he's in total despair also he gets accused of a murder and then he doesn't get to do anything about it <laughs> that's the that's the russian equivalent here <laughs> i guess we should mention maybe now mm-hmm. even though it's too late It'll be a spoiler-filled episode. If you haven't seen the film, you should see the film before listening to this episode. <laughs> yeah, yes, you should do that. You should watch it. It's about two hours and 20 minutes, uh, even though that seems... Well, actually, I guess given a lot of movies recently, that actually doesn't seem that long in comparison. Uh, but it's worth every second, even the quiet moments. Quiet moments make the loud moments all the, all the more interesting. It's pretty well-paced, I would say. I was watching this again just last night before recording this episode, and I was thinking that, like... Uh, on the first time I watched it, I was like, yeah, this is like a little bit slow, a little quiet. And now on the second time, I was like, no, everything's perfect. It's everything is as it should be. <laughs> well, I mean, it just it follows. It puts you in the right mindset of you're in a, this quiet, small town where very little actually happens other than, mm-hmm. um, you know, corrupt, corrupt mares trying to take your land. Uh, and so it's a lot of time spent staring out at the ocean or out at seabeds or beaches or at the broken down old rotting ships. And 
even without music, you just sit there and you stare. Because, I mean, a lot of the time when you're out in a rural area like that, what else is there to do? Yeah, there's no background music going on in rural areas for sure. <laughs> right. That actually, it, yeah, it immediately turns off when I when I drive out of town. It's weird. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you got to look into that. But so let's talk about the film itself. As Matt mentioned, this will be this will have spoilers. So if that bothers you, check out the movie first. Uh, you can find it anywhere it's on it's across many streaming services you can find it anywhere (laughs) (laughs) just open up open up your internet browser of choice type it in go to daily motion (laughs) yeah if you speak maybe romanian there seems to be a translated copy into there Uh, right yeah yeah we we are we assume it's romanian on the basis that it looks like french but less comprehensible um so the film itself we open up as we mentioned lots of Lots of landscape shots, and we we come in, we join this kind of family in progress, uh, populated by Father Kolia, Mother Lydia, who is uh, an apparent second wife and stepmother to uh, Kolia's son uh, Roma. As as, and this is the the comparison point with Mar- Marvin Hemeyer. Uh, so the the government, or more specifically, the mayor of their small town, uh, which I don't I don't think is ever named, just some rural, Betty. huh? Vadim. But no, sorry, the, the town is never named. Oh, the town, yeah. Yeah. Um, so they're in the small rural, like, <laughs> on the bay, you know, full, all these rotting docks still there, not much else. And, uh, you know, now Vadim, the, this mayor, wants their land and they're losing the fight. So uh, Kolia's old army friend, Dima or Dimitri, is, is coming to, to help him out. He's a, a lawyer in Moscow. Dima arrives, he tells Kolya, all right, let's, um, after, after some tea and after some conversing, uh, Dima kind of tells Kolya, oh, okay, I've got dirt on Vadim, a lot of stuff, horror show, which we never find out. It's not really that relevant, but, you know, he's, he's into something or other that's not above bar, I will say lightly. And Dima proposes, okay, look, I don't think this is going to go our way, but on the back end, we're going to take a more nuanced approach and then see where we can get from there this kind of uh continues as we've got this uh, family life as dima involves himself as dima predicts the first court hearing does not go well the court rules against them uh, it basically gives them until the next morning to you know turn over their property uh, which is a process that gets stalled once dima approaches vadim this corrupt mayor and puts forth this blackmail and we it's where we kind of where we leave that for now uh, at the same time this has been happening, Dima and Lilia have started a have started a sexual relationship, which I think which comes after um I think Kolya is he's when they're trying to petition the to put in a petition over some incidents that happen, uh Kolya gets not arrested, but he gets put in custody and, and while while that's happening, uh, Dima and Lilia go back to have something to eat, which leads to them sleeping together. And that all uh, kind of comes to a head the next day, or maybe even the day after that, when they all go out for a picnic to celebrate a, a birthday of a friend of uh, Lilia's. Um, and they all go out there and they decide, hey, you know it's a perfect birthday? One, booze. Two, kebabs. Three, automatic firearms. Uh, so they go to the middle of nowhere and start drinking heavily i mean yeah, seriously I wouldn't say booze i would say like a tub full of booze <laughs> <laughs> before they do anything these four guys they have an entire i assume 750 milliliter bottle of vodka they got four cups they fill up those four cups until the bottle is no more than drink it and said okay time for us to handle firearms time for us to really get started so during this event, you know, these guys are kind of rocking and rolling. The women are rolling their eyes and go off to make the kebabs. Except for Lilia, who gets up and leaves. Dima, after a brief moment, very noticeably, starts switching his cups to other people so he's drinking less, then goes off in a similar direction, uh, which leads to one of the, the one of the kids that's involved later finding them um, having sex. And then you see these guys go running off and lots of yelling and then some gunfire, you might assume. Did they, did they kill? Did they kill uh, Dima or Lilia? Uh, next scene, no, they're back, back in, but they're they're beating the hell up. Mostly Dima, but you can see that uh, Lilia is developing a black eye, and they go back to Dima's hotel. Dima and Lilia talk, and then Lilia goes back to Kolia in a pretty awkward, pretty awkward moment for everyone involved. 
the next morning, uh, Vadim shows up at uh, Dima's hotel and says, hey, come on, get in, let's go talk. And as they go off, presumably to finalize the deal that Dima has been trying to put together for Kolya to either keep his land or really what he proposes is Kolya gets uh, much more money for the land than uh, Vadim had proposed he be given for it uh, as part of this eminent domain deal. Vadim then has his gooms again beat the shit out of Dima. Not a good two days for him. Uh, and then puts him through a mock execution. Uh, the next day Dima gets on the train and that's the last time we ever see him uh, in this film. After this point, uh, we follow Kolya Lilia for a little bit longer as they're packing up and getting ready to leave. Lilia one morning gets up, presumably to go to work. We follow the same motions as she has gone to work through before. Uh, said, instead, she heads out to a cliffside and then from that point forward, she's gone missing up until the point when her body is found and Kolya has a breakdown, especially once uh, he is accused of her murder. Um, and the back half of the movie basically follows the process of uh, him him in grief, him uh, being arrested by the police, his accusation uh, being convicted by the court. And then finally, after he's been convicted, we follow through a sermon with uh, uh, Vadim, the corrupt mayor, who is listening to this priest who throughout the movie he's been talking to and who has been giving him advice. Um, and we listen to the sermon and then see some more landscape shots. And that's where we leave the movie. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's hopeful. It's inspiring. Yeah. Hope, that's hopeful is, is definitely how I would <laughs> describe this movie. <laughs> no, it's bleak. It's a bleak boy. It's a, it's a bleak boy. Um, just in terms of, I mean, just craft. I mean, this isn't, uh, I, I just the way that I, w- I will say this movie conveys this bleakness and this emptiness through such uh, wide shots and just spending so much time sitting and watching these characters drive from one place to the other or just staring off a cliff. It it, uh, it conveys a visceral sense of bleakness of, of very little, um, except for Dima, of course, a very little pressure or, or uh, hurry to get anywhere, <laughs> uh, which I think sets it up well, especially for the back half. When the first half is very slow, the back half picks up to a... a not actually a, a not actually a fast pace, but in comparison to the first half of the film, um, almost feels breakneck at which at which things get thrown at you as a viewer. Well, I mean the whole like I think the first six minutes or so of the film, there's not actually any dialogue. No, <laughs> it's just shots of things happening and people walking around, cooking, eating. Uh, that is after the like you said those enormous wide establishing shots um, that are used to take take in the sort of surrounding ocean and the in the beast within <laughs> right and um is there anywhere you want to start in particular there's a couple things to go over here i wanted to start on the actual silence of the film mm, okay it is so quiet the film i don't think there is any music if i'm not mistaken a lot of the music is like you know in film like it happening like within the environment of the film uh the just a lot of the emotion of the film is conveyed through the sort of micro facial expressions of the actors which i think are so phenomenal and not to mention not just silence but how prosaic a lot of the film is like you said most of what you're doing is just watching people in their daily life until about the second half of the movie when there's you know blackmail and whatnot right the slow burn water intro this reminded me a lot of solaris personally these sort of wide establishing shots kind of remind me of some of the cinematography from tarkovsky there are are a few moments i think that are actually mimicked exactly from this film but that that is one that i started noticing immediately speaking of silence too semi-relatedly as you've mentioned, a lot of the emotion of the film comes through the, the facial expressions, the micro expressions, the or even sometimes lack of facial expression from a character. And I think that's fascinating. I, I saw in a couple of reviews, I don't know if it was a criticism exactly, but the reviewers pointed out that there are a lot of characters whose, especially Lilia, whose character motivations are pretty opaque. Not only do we not have her perspective, but we also don't have her saying much about it, if anything, really. Um, but... I think that's a bit misguided. I think the point of not only Lilia, she's, I think, the most obvious example, but to a certain degree, everyone's 
uh, motivations are pretty opaque. People are very, everyone in this film is very reserved. Um, they're all people who, for one reason or another, discomfort, um, or whatever the reason are, they don't really speak their emotions. And I think that's a great strength of the film that we have all these people who, even to each other, are strangers to a certain degree. There is a lot which they don't convey to each other or won't say to each other, or you'll have long scenes where you'll see one character talking, or not, you'll, you'll hear one character talking, you know, Kolya, and then it will be sitting on maybe Lilia, the camera will be sitting on Lilia, who's eating a tomato and just kind of staring half at him, staff half away. You've got this palpable sense of this relationship in this family that there's, you know, on camera, off camera, not a lot gets said. And I think that opacity, I don't know if it's the point, but I think the, the alienation from what each of these characters are actually feeling, with the exception of Kolya, who wears his heart on his sleeve, um, which again is more just showing through description, uh, is, 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 is a powerful thing. I mean, I think the only people who really kind of see what they're thinking are Pasha, the cop, and his wife, who are, um, uh, his wife, I, forget, I don't know if her name is ever given, I, I believe it is at some point. She, she is the only one, and Pasha, to a certain degree, the only one who really say what they're thinking. Um, <laughs> but also, they're not part of the main family, which, you know, then it's that very dynamic in the main family, which creates the whole situation. Them being pushed away from each other, so I think that's a great great strength of the film not only uh in terms of how sound gets used um not diegetically non-diegetically just getting keeping the character motivations from us i think that's that's a great strength i also think that when you kind of sometimes think about small town rural some of our association might be close-knit communities and that is definitely not the case here like you said it's very much a film of fracture and not only thematically but also in the way that a lot of the shots are structured where the camera will be placed in a way where you as the observer are outside of the action and you actually can't even hear the dialogue being said. You know people are talking because you can see their lips moving, but you don't hear anything. And so it's so it struck me as so strange while I was watching this where, for instance, in the first courtroom scene where the, the judge is just, you know, like monologuing incredibly, incredibly fast. Uh, reading off the history of the trial and everything, how it had come to that point. Well, the camera breaks off with somebody peeks their head in and realizes they're presumably in the wrong courtroom or whatever. And then the camera follows this random person out and you get uh, an extended shot of a woman crying in the hallway. Or while filing the petition, you are kind of behind that behind that thick glass that the, the guards or whoever uh are behind and you don't you don't hear vadim talking um or not vadim sorry you don't hear uh, dima talking so you have a lot of these sort of situations or even when vadim and dima meet when you're outside the office camera is placed in such a way where you don't hear a lot of the dialogue that you're kind of like uh set up like you want to hear like some of these what you would assume to be more explosive moments of dialogue you don't always hear. Um, similarly, Dima's mock execution, right? For a large part of it, <laughs> you're in the car with the with the music playing that's on in the car. Uh, so you're just kind of sitting there as a passenger, unable to really do anything. It kind of constrains you almost as the viewer. Sorry, I, I like that part of the film. No, it's good. I, the yeah, the cinematography is is fantastic. It, at both uh, alienating you from the scene you're watching and also bringing you in with the, all these, like you mentioned, these shots, which are from the view point of view, which can only have been through a theoretical person there. Like you're sitting in the front seat, or in that case, I guess it would have been the back seat of like that, of that car, of that uh, SUV, as you watch Dima being beaten. It's uh, a lot of, a fair number of shots are from that human eye view, which, <laughs> as, as you point out, typically come with losing our full, like, uh, I don't know what the term would generally be like having we, we have some sort of um, God's eye view into things we hear all this dialogue everything but as soon as you jump out of that human eye view you start falling prey to things like sound not being able to travel through that barrier at the police station for example yeah I think that's what that is and in, in a lot of films you kind of assume right like as the spectator you're supposed to be able to see the central action but not in this film and it leaves a lot unsaid and it also leaves a lot undone. And so I thought that was kind of an interesting approach to shooting it. Right. And to, to your point about leaving things undone, I, I think that's another strength of the film in, in, that, in that it's trying to track 
I don't know if, if trying to track a, a life is, is an accurate way to describe it, but uh, it's not, in a way, it's not telling a, a story as you might understand it. It doesn't have a lot of resolution. It leaves it open-ended. Uh, characters, Dima, after being beaten and, and executed and threatened, you know, you might say, okay, the, this is the moment when finally Dima is going to have his revenge. He's going to release that dirt on Vadim. You know, he's going to, he's going to, you know, they're going to win over this guy. But no, Dima just goes back to Moscow after he's threatened. And that's the last time you ever see him. And he just exits the movie after that. Sometimes. I kind of can't stand Dima, to be honest. <laughs> on a second watch. Sure. I think being coded as a lawyer in film, I mean, there's no coming back from that already from the beginning. <laughs> right. Just such a bad friend. <laughs> also, I, I feel like he's kind of like the... Uh, he, I don't know, like to me, he's almost like that sort of neoliberal character that you would assume most people would resonate with or root for, right? He's well-educated, he's the Moscow lawyer, he really believes in laws, or so he says, at one point he says, oh, I only believe in facts, when asked about whether he believes in God. Mm. Yet, throughout the movie, he does essentially nothing with the law. The only way he accomplishes anything is also by blackmail, <laughs> by working outside of official institutions. Right. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting thing that he, as you say, he professes to to believe in law. And when Kolya and Lilia are looking for reinforcement, like things are going to go well, he says, well, yeah, of course, the law is the law, but I know how to help us work through it with the people in it. So despite, as you say, despite apparently believing that the law is actually something that really matters and not like it's a weapon of the government, which in this case it very obviously is, as you can see when the when the, the judge meets with the mayor and the mayor starts giving her orders on how things to be done, right? Um, Dima also is, is very comfortable with the fact that he, as you say, is not really, he's not working through law, he's working through people, working through networks, which by virtue of this being a small town, everyone more or less being connected, although not personally. They know each other to the extent that that means anything. Well, he's, yeah, he, he's both aware of the reality, but also posits, a, posits to believe in a reality which doesn't exist, frankly. Yeah, and I think he's kind of a, I don't know, sort of um, interesting character. He sets up like an interesting issue. Which is a lot of times just people will say, well, to fix corruption, maybe you just need different laws, stricter laws, mm. uh, fairer laws, right? And it really starts to emphasize this core issue in the film about justice. And the idea of justice here is it's never going to be solved through the law. <laughs> That's kind of the takeaway, I think, from part of the film is that the law doesn't determine what is just. And there really is no recourse through, you know, these official institutions to obtain anything just. Right. So I, that's interesting. I want to, do you mind if we, sec, if, we're, if we for a second talk about the title of the movie and then we can tie back back to this point because I do, it's not really, it is related. Uh, so Leviathan is, you know, obviously a biblical creature and it gets its most direct reference in the movie when uh, after Lilia's suicide, Kolya in mourning confronts this priest uh, who I think it's notable that he's the only priest who, um, well, there are only two priests one of whom is uh, an, a confidant of Vadim's and lives an expensive lifestyle. We're always seeing them eating, you know, expensive, uh, expensive meals. This priest, however, when we meet him, he has either just bought or he's received just a bunch of bread from a store and is putting it in a bag. And when Kolya asks him, you know, if I believed in God, would that change anything? Would uh, that bring my wife back? And the priest tells him, can you pull on the Leviathan with a fish hook or tie down its tongue with a rope? Will it keep begging you for mercy? Will it speak to you using gentle words? Nothing on earth is its equal. It is king over all that is proud. Uh, which is an excerpt from the book of Job from chapter 41. Um, which, um, do you want me to, just for those of you who are not familiar with the book of Job, that's a book from the Old Testament. Uh, and the basic idea is that God's chilling. Uh, <laughs> God's <laughs> just chilling. And... While, he, while he's chilling, he's hanging out, uh, Satan approaches him. And Satan, if you are not really familiar with it in the Old Testament, carries an interesting role where uh, Satan is used to refer to several different, sometimes people, sometimes celestial beings, um, in the sense that Satan, in this case, means accuser. Um, and it has plays different roles. It's not one singular character. In this particular usage, uh, it's, I believe the Hebrew is ha-Satan, meaning the kind of like the accuser. 
which seems to be kind of role as some scholars have interpreted it. That's an interpretation of scholar, but it's not how I think that the uh, New Testament or, you know, once you get to the Christian Bible outside of um, the original Hebrew texts, you know, Satan's to take on the singular celestial, you know, fall from grace, angel, whatever. But in this case, uh, the accuser really just is the role here is to be like, hey, are things really how you think they are? And and in Ha Satan tells God in this case, look, um, there is not a man alive who, if you did not take away everything that he had, no matter how much he professes to believe in you, would then curse you. And uh, God says, no, my buddy Job here would never curse my name. And Satan says, well, why don't you take away everything he has? God says, bet. And then God kills all Job's kids and all his crops and all his animals. And then Job, through the book, is um, uh, Job maintains that he did nothing wrong. Um, he, it, there's no reason for him to be punished. And Job has three awful friends who come in for the rest of the book, argue with him. And they're basically telling him, hey, Job, it is your fault. Um, until the end of the book when God appears in a whirlwind and um, says to them all, you know, you three, you are bad friends. I curse thee. Job, just so you know, I totally did that to you, buddy. I am from whence all good and all evil comes. Uh, but you've never cursed my name, so here's some stuff. And throughout there, he also conveys how powerful he is by conveying all these creatures of the earth he's created, among which is the Leviathan. Now, I say all that because sometimes if you read reviews, uh, the... And this is impossible to avoid the comparison of the entire movie to the book of Job, not only because it's named after a biblical creature, uh, not only because it directly references the book of Job chapter 41, but it has some features in common as a story. And that has, I've seen several times over, led people to say it's sort of, you know, it's inspired by the book of Job, it alludes to the book of Job. I have some thoughts on that. We'll come back to that later because it's not relevant to this direct point. And I say all that because that is the most obvious interpretation of Leviathan, but there is an alternate interpretation of Leviathan uh, as a meaning, which comes from the the book by Thomas Hobbes, uh, Leviathan. And in this case, Thomas Hobbes puts forth what's later comes to be known as contract theory or a theory of how governance gets its legitimacy. And what uh, Hobbes puts forth is that people naturally live in a state of nature. And as a corollary point, people are uh, maximizers of their own pleasure. And when we live in a state of nature, what that means to Hobbes is there is nothing to constrain anyone's individual freedom. So in a state of nature, you have absolute freedom. But because humans are, are pleasure maximizers, they will try to gain the best possible of everything. And living among other people, that will necessarily mean butting up against the things that they want. And so not everyone will actually be able to get the best of all they want because they'll be killed and constrained by other people. And then that's where the place of a government, or as Hobbes terms it, a leviathan comes in to come in and restrict your individual rights. In exchange for that, it allows people to more or less get everything they need uh, from society without actually having to, without being able to go to the full extent they want because by limiting everyone's freedoms they therefore allow everyone to enjoy them more fully rather than some people getting to enjoy them a lot and a lot of other people getting them to enjoy a little bit and so you give your freedoms to live in um, to remove yourself from this state of nature and that is the purpose that the government serves to uh, allow more people to have access to this i bring that up because i think that's a more relevant comparison to this film than i think job is and i know that uh, i i think it would be it would be a disservice to this film to reduce it just to a criticism of uh the russian government although it certainly is that um but i i i struggle with uh, uh, interpreting the book of job in re- relation to the film but i think that the comparisons between talking about an ideal of governance as one which in which your individual rights are limited uh, as a, are limited in order to allow you to more fully enjoy, you know, a broader spectrum of them uh, in relation to this reality where these rules and ideas are put in place. But in effect, what it does is just reifies what Hobbes might call the state of nature where uh, certain people who are in control of the levers are able to maximize their pleasure and minimize other people's. Uh, in effect, cr- despite this this Leviathan being in place, it effectively doesn't. It, it effectively only exists to prevent people from being able to struggle against this uh, this uh, infringement upon their own freedoms and, and desires and such forth. Yeah, I, I don't really know if there's a Leviathan in place in this film. You, you know what I mean? I feel like it's it's more closer to sort of like anarchic system. 
I, well, I think that's the, that's the point. I feel like that's kind of how the film is bringing you in here because it, it has the, the justice system, the, the government, they all have the features of the so-called Leviathan. Mm-hmm. But the reality of it is that each of these features are simply a weapon to maintain power. Uh, the court, I think it's interesting that we are only ever in court for the reading, as you pointed out, for the reading of, um, of, of, of a verdict. We are not in through any other feature of it. The only important feature of the court is what it says in the end. And what it says in the end, as the film posits, was always what it was going to say, because it's not a real court. It's controlled by people who are trying to maintain their power and understand that if they lose their power or lose their patrons, they will be shit out of luck. There's no help for them after that point. Someone else will use it against them. Yeah, so that's my mini rant. I'm going to come back to the book of Job eventually, but it's, I've been talking for a while. Is there anything... <laughs> Uh, you want to, any other? I topics? agree with your point on that. It shouldn't be a, a reduction to just a critique of the Russian government. I think it is on many levels, but I also think it, it transcends that. It makes a broader point on the relationship between people, governance, and also God. I think the Book of Job is relevant, but I understand your point. <laughs> I think Hobbes is also relevant. I think Hobbes is obviously there. I mean, that's a, a good comparison mm. that a lot of people don't always talk about. Okay, this is a lot on Leviathan. I think now would be a good time for a break. We'll be back in just a second. Hey, and if you want, because this is a podcast, if you haven't watched the film yet, you can pause it right here, go watch the film, and come back. Having only spoiled that would be part of it, yeah. Well, uh, Having only spoiled the main action for <laughs> right. you. But it's not about the main action, it's about the small things. Anyway, this episode was brought to you by us. You can support independent podcasting by heading to our website, slaviclitpod.com. You'll get access to the notes we use to make this episode, including links to all secondary sources mentioned. If you want to support the show, but you don't want to spend any of those hard-earned doubloons, you can join our email list for free at slaviclitpod.com, or you can leave us a nice review wherever you get your podcasts. Questions, comments, or maybe you want to appear on our Office Hours podcasts. Drop us a line. You can reach out our... You can reach our voicemail at 209-800-3944. One more time, that's 209-800-3944. Or you can say also email us a voice recording or text question at slavicletpod at gmail.com. We'll bring your question onto the podcast and do our best to answer it. All right, let's get back to the big fish. <laughs> Actually, I want to I have a question for you because the first time we talked about Leviathan... You told mm-hmm. me, sorry, I'm, I know I'm springing this on you uh, out of nowhere, but you okay. told me that you didn't, sure. this film didn't do a great job making critique of the modern Orthodox Church. And I wanted to, I wanted to understand that point a little better, because I, 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 I'm, I'm curious as, as to what you meant by that. Uh, I don't really remember what I meant by that, to be honest. That's fair. But I do have some thoughts on, the, actually, I really do think that the Book of Job has a lot to do with the film, because I, I actually think... A, a large portion of the film is is a critique of organized religion hmm. more generally. I think it's a, it's a critique of just <laughs> organizations, probably kind of centralized power in in a lot of ways. Because the the contrast that you noted, I believe the the priest that's advising Vadim is not a priest, but actually a metropolitan. So I think he's in charge of this area in general. So he's higher up in the hierarchy, whereas this village priests he's sort of uh, on a lower rung and in the sense it, it keeps him he, he's more honest priest he's this sort of yeah, almost like this tolstoyan priest i think that's sort of what the the religious bent of the film is uh to be honest mm. i think it's really like it's actually really tolstoyan in nature in the sense that you can find god personally not through organized religion and that, i think that's the drive of the film of of what of what the film is saying there's there's a few interesting uh, a few interesting points on this and it'll tie back to our discussion of like communities i think too so there are two mirrored scenes in the shot that i think in the shot in the film that i think are really important there is people looking up at the cupola of the church now up there there's usually an icon sometimes christ that's what's shown at the very end of the film when Vadim's boy looks up and he sees Christ at the top of the church. When Kolya is in the abandoned church where his son drinks with his friends and he's down there guzzling vodka doing whatever he's supposed to do <laughs> and he looks up to the cupola of that church, it is disintegrated and he can see directly through to the sky. 
Now, my interpretation of this is that the the finished church that is closed off to this other world, whereas the disintegrated church is open to this world, and that is why the right the organization as such has no bearing on your access personally to God. Not my belief, what I think the film is saying. Uh, and I, th I think that actually the reason that it takes place in this abandoned church is because uh, Kolya's son, right, this is where his group of friends hangs out. I mean, they're a little bit degenerates, but at the end of the day, they're just teenagers, you know, they're having fun. Hey, also, and... hanging out with your buddies when you're in high school and just lighting a fire in like a disintegrating gigantic church and just passing around a beer, that sounds awesome. I would do that right now for fun. Yeah, my mom definitely would not have let me do that. <laughs> but that, I guess it sounds fun. Yeah. <laughs> um but yeah so that's kind of the only example of like a functioning community that i could point to in the film uh and you know they're kind of like accountable to each other because when Cole is asking about his son like the kids know like where he went and kind of what everyone is up to and right so i think it's no coincidence that the that that is sort of the replacement for the church right is the the linkages of that community and I think that that is one way that you can interpret the film. I, I think the reason that I said this is not a a, a a great critique of the Orthodox Church, right, is as this corrupt priest at the end is giving his sermon, and I can't remember exactly what he says. He says something to the effect of, like, you know, God sees everything. Um, well, I think, like, most people in the Orthodox Church would agree that what he's doing is not right, and that God will see that and judge that as well, because there was... A metropolitan interviewed i believe the one actually that was in charge of the region of where the city that the film is based off of and journalists were asking him like don't you think this is a, a mockery don't you think this is a disgrace because a lot of orthodox people in russia were upset when this came out and basically he said like hey if there's corruption then this film is you know shedding a light on it then you know good it should <laughs> like mm -hmm. there shouldn't be uh you know this shouldn't be happening in the church and so I, I don't I don't really see it personally as big ah gotcha moment. I, I think that there are right there are obviously you know issues, but I don't know that I would necessarily you know go so far as this radical Tolstoyan reading mm. personally mm. to say that no religious organization has any merit or is like completely unneeded. I think that that is pretty radical. Sure, sure. Which yeah, I don't think is what this film is saying. Um... You could read it that way. I think I don't know if it's a hundred percent. You know. Well, I, I think that by, by virtue of having priests in comparison to the church, um, it seems to re, like reinforce an idea that there is a positive form of religion, which is not really like based on the church, which, which is where I start getting to that Tolstoyan element. Um, there's no, there's not a complete lack of redeeming features of religiosity in this film. It's just that everything associated in this film with organized, the organized um, um, Orthodox church there is just coded as you know part of this power structure which can you know is is meant to carry itself forward mm -hmm. right when like vadim is trying to talk to the priest though <laughs> not the priest the metropolitan the, the the metropolitan about what's going on the metropolitan says look um what is it you know don't tell me the details i'm not your confessor <laughs> 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 which i mean he's like both funny because you right because in one sense he's right but in another sense <laughs> it's an interesting sleight of hand to avoid any legally knowing anything <laughs> there is also this really good scene i think in that in part of that with the demon the priest where I, I i don't know if it actually shows it on the film but i'm pretty sure they're drinking vodka together which is not necessarily impossible to happen right but so it seems to me to indicate the sort of desecration of the icon that is on the wall behind them blurred. If you're paying close attention, there's a large icon of the Last Supper. And it is mimicked exactly the way that they're sitting, you know, kind of at the table together. And, you know, as, as they're toasting and talking about, you know, essentially what, doing whatever needs to be done, wink, wink, in order to build this this new church on stolen land, uh, you, you see this this icon behind them mm. it is sort of this desecration i see personally i thought it was just one of those like it was just like a really good touch because it, it was one of those it's like it's really not in your face you know the fact that it was it was not in focus while the scene was being shot i thought was wonderful speaking of, of religion i'm gonna take it back to sorry i'm gonna get back on my on my oh, on my high horse for a second 
I'm talking about the book of Job. And I understand your point that it, it, it is not, it is relevant to the film, but I think in general, leaning too hard in the book of Job more obscures the film. I think the film lives more on its own life and it really like falls in the shadow of the book of Job because I, that's true. Yeah. I like just the lessons of the book are just, I, are, not that they're not relevant to the film, but it, it takes and chooses, which is fine. It takes elements that it, it wants and it leaves behind a lot of other elements. Well, like in the book of Job, um, you know, it's entirely the, you know, the character of Job going through all these trials and tribulations, his friends saying it must be your fault. And then there's this other guy, Elihu, shows up to deliver a message. And my hot take is that Elihu should not be read as part of the book of Job. I know this is controversial among scholars. I think Elihu was added later. Uh, that's my hot take. Because, I mean, he's just never, he's never, he shows up, he's never mentioned before or after. God immediately shows up after Elihu, does not, addresses everyone there except for Elihu for some reason, and also contradicts Elihu. So, I, I don't know, it just, it feels, it feels weird as a, as a piece of literature to have that but anyway uh you know god shows up at the end and and curses everyone for saying it must be job's fault um and he's like no i totally did that i i am from where all good and from where all evil comes from i am all powerful let me show you how powerful i am and then he restores everything to job um for you know job never curses god out and i think it's notable that in this case uh, although kolya could be read as someone who is cursing god uh, especially when he's at this priest and he's confronting him and he says, hey, if I start believing, would that have changed anything? Would believing bring my wife back? Uh, and the priest keeps telling him, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what goes forward. But then he conveys to him the story of Job. I think there's certain parallels in, in the way that Kulia actually is never like in rejection of, of, you know, a god, which would be, is, I think, if I recall correctly, the only unforgivable sin, really. Any, pretty much anything else could be forgiven. And I don't know if that's just an interpretation that came through, through uh the church I was raised in, but, um, there are parallels, but I think overall, like the messages diverge so much. It's just not a very helpful frame of reference really, other than picking and choosing some of its features and some of its themes, you know, at the end, Kolya, of course, nothing was restored to him, at least at the time the film ends. That doesn't mean nothing ever will. And it also, it's not like a contradiction or anything as God points out, if we were to accept that, um, you know, good things can come from this, this Hebrew God, also the bad things come from him. So, uh, it's not, yeah, I don't know. I think the film just lives too much in its own right to to fall within the shadow of Job too much, other than some illusions, is my hot take. Well, I, I think that's, I mean, I think that's fair. It's not like it's supposed to be like a recreation of the book of Job, necessarily. But I do think that your, how you feel in relation to the Bible probably impacts the ending of the film. Right. Whether you see it as containing any hope at all or whether you see it as bleak you know this film shows us that there is no hope for us for humanity and we should all just i don't know essentially kill ourselves there's <laughs> literally nothing you're right there's nothing for us to do i mean that would be the conclusion that you would have to mm. to lead to right if you don't believe in an afterlife right if you don't believe mm. in the possibility of some sort of redemption like that that's how i would that's how i would think <laughs> um that's how I would think it would lead, right? Yeah, we're really getting into. I feel like the ghost of Albert Camus is is emerging from his grave. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, yeah. So it it the ending. I think. Well, so towards the ending, I can move it slightly. I, I do. I want to talk about, and I don't want to lean too much on individual symbology as like a oh, this is going to decode the film. But do you think that the whale skeleton that's featured throughout the film is interesting? You know, I, I do. You think it's interesting the whale skull? I well, I think it's it's interesting only in relation to the fact, and I, again, like I don't think it tells you anything super deep about the film, but it's interesting that for most characters, you only experience this whale as a skeleton, uh, except for Lilia, who uh, uh, presumably in the moment before her suicide um, sees the uh, a whale diving. So you, the one time you see a live whale in relation to this whale skeleton. It's just before the suicide. I don't have anything to... Ah, no, you see it at the beginning of the film, too. Oh, okay. There you go. It's two times. In the water. So, yeah, all right. So, twice you see Busted it. your theory, the... huh? Well, I don't really have a theory. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't have anything to make of that. I just think it's interesting that that's the, the symbolism used of uh, the having having something alive only comes before the suicide. I don't know what that means necessarily, but I feel like they're trying to convey something with it. Well, it's few, I guess, interpretations you could have. There's... So there's there's like one thing that I thought was was interesting and it's before Lydia dies she's working like gutting and cleaning fish mm. basically 
and the comparison of the fish processing compared to the skull of this like magnificent now dead wild animal mm. i i thought was just like was excellent i thought that that was supposed to be drawn as a comparison um but i i would also say that in in general right like in the orthodox world the idea of like the heavens and earth as like separate uh places mm. that are right like not i don't know how you say it, like not reachable from within each other like they're completely separate they have essentially nothing to do with each other you just transfer from one to the other at the end if you were good right like that it doesn't work like that like they're combined they're 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 more integrated right in orthodox thought and so whether this is the whale or right this old biblical beast right i think that that's one way that you can you can kind of think about it um that there is this otherworldly maybe presence uh, within the world, even though it does seem so hopeless, I don't want to read the film as too hopeless. Actually, personally, interesting. Tell me, tell me more. I just, I just personally don't want to. No, you. Right, <laughs> <laughs> <Hey>, that's fair. <laughs> it, it's like it's not like um, it's not like a, I've I've analyzed and decoded, and I think it's this. It's I personally don't want to. I don't. I, I would be too depressed if that was right. If that was the interpretation of the film. Yeah. Um, I think that it it sort of. I don't know. Like characters like Dima, I wonder like how they how they end up. Mister, I only believe in facts. Right. Like where does he fit in in this world? Well, I think that when I approach this, the fact that um, I kind of approach it the same way towards the end when uh, Kolya is accused of uh, of having killed his wife. He's sat down in front of presumably some kind of police detective or sergeant. Uh, the sergeant. Dude, that man has like such strange proportions <laughs> no, too. He's like that guy is all shoulders <laughs> he looks like he's he has to be like one of those guys who's like seven feet tall and you're like kind of sit there he looks like a tim burton character actually <laughs> <laughs> so i just get the sense that if he stood up out of the cherries in the entire time he just like suddenly unfold and would be like <laughs> seven feet tall <laughs> but um he he tells uh kolia uh, that okay we recovered her body we found there's a hammer mark in the back of her head um and right we we assume and given that it seems like she had sex before she died. We're going to investigate this as a rape and murder. Um, and on on when you were on on the uh, what is it? Watch this tonight. Um, I think you posited that this is meant to be a, kind of an allusion to kind of Stalin's show trials. I think that's right. I think that's right for the most part. For some viewers, that may bring up the question. Uh, you know, bring up. I think. The question of oh maybe he did kill his wife maybe that's something that did happen. Um, I don't personally think that text leads you to believe anything but what you said that it's meant to be kind of an illusion to show Charles. But I think there's a lot of feature features of this film which, um, if you consider them on their own right, it doesn't. I don't think it matters. Like the fact that Dima shows up, tries to help, fucks up, and then leaves. Uh, the fact that we don't know where Colia's story goes. The fact that I, I don't think we should even try to answer whether or not he was even involved in his wife's death. All these features of the story, I think, don't need to fit neatly in uh, because all these characters themselves don't fully understand. They're as lost as we are a lot of the time. And I, I think because Leviathan reflects an experience of life so well in not only um, having ends to characters' storylines, that doesn't have a typical story end. It doesn't have necessarily a meaning. It just you know this this character just got too scared got too beat up and he left he's gone and sometimes that's how it goes in life sometimes we don't know what comes next sometimes we don't know what the people around us are thinking we as a viewer are very much integrated i think as if we were a character too and so much doesn't make sense and i think that's i feel like that's a feature of the story that that doesn't need to go together that it's just we're experiencing part of a life and all its messiness that comes with it and all of its lack of 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 denouement of of conclusion and uh, idea where it's meant to go you know good or bad whatever comes next by virtue of being as locked in this time and place as the characters are that's simply not for us to know that's something that's gonna happen on its own on its own pace i that's i don't know that's how i read it a lot of these some of these features yeah my problem with demon more is just i feel like his worldview is incompatible with the world in which he actually lives you know what i mean yeah oh no i think i think your point that he's got that kind of that I guess I would roughly call it like a liberal mindset of like kind of believing in the system well all the time clearly on some level of knowing how things really work that this 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 right. idea of governance this idea of law is is sort of a fiction meant to hide the fact that they do what they want <laughs> right right 
It actually, I don't know, this film really reminds me of Gogol and Pushkin described Gogol's artistic method once as laughter through tears of sorrow. And to me, I, you got to have kind of a messed up sense of humor like myself, but this one's pretty funny to me, actually. There's there's a lot of moments of comedy mm. in this film between the way things are shot and the just perverse symbolism that occurs in different spots. But it, th- there are a lot of moments, I think, of humor. You just have to be looking for them. Right. And you probably have to have a screw or two loose. I don't it's know. a it's a very bleak form. <laughs> it's a it's like it's a form of humor where I think everything is you're in a situation and everything is so fucked. It's so impossible for you to solve what's going on here that all you can really do is laugh because <laughs> that's like right, fuck right. it. I'm gonna laugh or I'm gonna cry. Um, and I guess or both at once. Right. I, yeah. Both these things might be happening. <laughs> yeah. Now there is one scene that I did want to. Uh, yeah talk about towards the end this i I love the scene where where his house is getting destroyed where Cole's <laughs> house is getting torn down i just thought that was like such a that must have been such a cool shot to like film and do yeah. everything <laughs> it reminds me of like this sort of modern version of matriona's house by solzhenitsyn mm. this sort of destruction of the pristine rural countryside in, in some ways mm. And it, it was just kind of it's like an interesting parallel I was thinking about while I was watching again. But during that scene, there is uh, a shot that is mirrored. I believe this was from Solaris by Tarkovsky. In Solaris, there is, and in Leviathan, there is the shot of rain falling on food and cup. Mm. And this seems kind of like um, uh, sort of like, who this is like so specific. What do, what do you care? But it's a long shot and it's a long shot in both of them and i feel like there are i I don't have it fully worked out but if you are going to include a long shot that almost directly mirrors the way that it works in another major filmmaker within your own uh nationality right um or even in just like world cinema since tarkovsky is like widely considered one of the greatest filmmakers of all times uh, then in that case it does become significant right Mm mm-hmm and to me, right, this this cup it is symbolic of Matthew twenty six. Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And right, so this is what is like so significant about the ending to me that this scene occurs in the destroyed uh, house of Kolya, right? And so the the ending of the film, I think, like I don't know if you can kind of if you read it as this like sort of. Um, acceptance of god or not Mm. i think like whether like depending on how you view that will again like directly influence whether you think this is a bleak film or a film with hope of redemption and i I think that that being placed so close to the end is really important and i can find the two like the screen grabs for people if they're interested because yeah it was yeah yeah we're we're gonna talk about solaris at some point i got like three hours of stuff to talk about with solaris (laughs) so uh we just got away from doing multi-month uh series on books but we will be doing a multi-month series just on solaris so i hope you're ready for that no it's gonna be one episode it's gonna be like eight hours long. (laughs) no editing on that one it's just stream of consciousness that would be fun actually That that would be uh yeah that would be interesting i think is there anything i feel like i talked about most of what i uh noticed in the film is there anything you want to cover before we head out which is one just one last thing you got to bear with me on the god stuff i think it's i really do think it's important here um i I think it's important but i think it also i'm not really sure like i said if it comes down on a side i think that's what to me is so like uh artistic of the film is it is it does depend on you like how you feel which is you you know it's fun but we talked a lot about silence and there is a really important passage from the Book of Kings in Orthodox theology about where you find God. And I, I just wanted to read it, give you a little food for thought on my personal theory on, you know, why, why is the film why is the film quiet? I think it's a theological thing, personally. So this passage is, Then the Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. The Lord will pass by. There was a strong and violent wind rending the mountains and crushing the rocks before the Lord but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire, a light, silent sound. When he heard this, Elijah hid his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of a cave. 
a voice said to him, why are you here, Elijah? And so this idea of finding God in silence, in like kind of uh, mellow contemplation, I think is really important for the film. Because the film is shot in this sort of almost, right, like silent contemplative mode, I would say. That's kind of what permeates the film as a whole. Mm. And so, right, like it might not be a one-to-one like comparison with the book of Job, but to me it kind of, it takes that core spiritual issue of Job and it kind of expands on it or, you know, explores it. Mm. I see your point. So I'm more Book of Job than Hobbes, personally. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Um, I guess to your point about how, how you view the world might also reflect how, you're, you're, how you come away from this story. Now, if you don't care about religion, then, then this film, I think, is what might be a part more interesting to you through like the lens of Hobbes, for instance. Not saying you personally, but right. like viewers. Like, it might be a more like interesting political issue. I think, though, this discussion shows that to reduce it to ah, look at a Russian government funny, right. it does bad thing. <laughs> like that, like you got to be like brain dead. Like that is not no the take that you should have. I mean, yeah, it is a take and it's just, it's too simplistic, right? Like it, it does have a lot of things, don't get me wrong, that are like very provocative. That even it's like some lines of dialogue, I'm like, oh, it's a little surprising. Um, but it's, it's not, right? Like I almost don't feel like that was the point 100%. And so to just reduce it to that, it's kind of like, ugh, I don't want to read one of those on Twitter again. Yeah. No, it's it's not just that. And it would be silly to reduce it to that. I, I'm full agreement that uh, dealing with spiritual issues is, is a core feature of this film. Um, I think part of it, we've talked about this previously, part of that tendency just comes from this sort of desire from non-specialists to understand, dis, like, quote, unquote, big quotes, your dissident culture from other places and yeah. all dissident culture tends to get lumped into either your pro-government or your anti-government and that gets into things where you're like oh um dr Zhivago, you know the gulag archipelago uh master and margarita you know those are all equivalent dissident literatures which doesn't allow for the actual variety of like difficult relationships that people might have with a place or a government or like you know any of the actual issues that in individualities that might come into this right like the fact that i suspect i don't know this for certain but i suspect there's very there's not a whole lot of overlap between like i don't know solzhenitsyn and, and well there's some overlap in solzhenitsyn and bulgakov especially in relation to the white card but like you know yeah. solzhenitsyn is not an equivalent dissident to i don't know what's like a what's the name mendeley of the uh dissident uh soviet historian i'll put his name in the show notes but yeah it's it's part of this desire that comes i think from not really understanding the full range of opinions and um yeah so Teresa to that is is i think part of a larger trend of unfortunate tendencies among media criticism that is let uh let at other cultures especially because once you leave then all you can be is a dissident you got it right <laughs> like yeah, the right, number right. of so people who left the soviet union only to die in obscurity uh or you know in poverty because people stopped caring after a while about their dissident literature and that was all they were interested in reading in the first place so yeah so that's that's kind of why i think that this is a it's a good film you should watch if you haven't watched it yet we've probably spoiled the crap out of it but just like you know because it's about more than russia and so i think that's what connects it right also to good literature of russia like the you know the golden age right it's a sort of spiritual exploration yeah I think that that's what the film kind of also maintains. And it's it's just it's much harder to chew on and it's much harder to think about that angle than it is just the government's bad. Yes. Which not that that's not worse. No one said that here, but I, other people have said that. So, yeah. Yeah. Which is a strength of the film that you can how much there is to root around in and how much your individual perspective coming in will affect how you see this film really worthwhile. I mean, Frank, there's a lot of this film we basically, even in this hour, didn't even get to cover so much of the relation between Kolya and Lilia, which I think is, is I don't, I'm not even certain you can really talk about it that much. I feel like that's something that has to be explored and, and felt more than really can be talked about. But yeah, that you should watch it. Why not? So much. Why not? <laughs> you don't have to wrap up. You can keep uh, going. No, I can, I, got I can, more. I can, I can, keep going. you can just keep going forever. But yeah, you can, there's a lot that we can, you, they're still to be found even outside of our discussion. Yeah, my, my closing thought that I kind of wanted to end on was this article that I read by uh, Russian critic Dmitry Bikov, who asked this question in a reviewer article on Leviathan. 
Is it really the authority's fault that all of the characters in the picture hate each other, drink like hell, don't believe in anything, and just endure everything? And that to me is kind of the main point, or a main point of the film, right? Is in why it can't just be a critique of government, because changing the government does not change the outcome of this film. Right. The the fact that it's set in a, a provincial rural, you know, it sh it shouldn't be read as just like a Putin <laughs> allegory, right? Like it's a commentary on like people. And you can you can switch out Vadim, but you're going to get someone who does the same exact thing. And right, it, in in that sense it's actually not really the government the government's fault, right? It's it's more of a feature of power and and centralization. So that, that was an interesting quote that I that I ran across. Yeah, yeah. I think that's... Cameron didn't like it. He died. I just heard it. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. I yeah. I think that's a good place to leave it. I like that. I think that's a good question to leave it on. All right, Matt. Before we completely wrap up, I have to ask you, what are we tackling uh, next time? Next time, we're going to be reading the short story, The Performance by Sergei Devlatov. If you are planning on reading along with us, be sure to pick up a copy through our affiliate links on our website. To help keep our show independent and for exclusive access to the notes containing all of the research that went into this episode, head on over to our website, slaviclitpod.com. And before we let you go, we want to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current supporters. Yes, and that would be uh, my, it's spelled M-Y, if that's not uh, what you want to have at the end here, just let me know through Discord or through email or just change it on, on, on the website. Uh, my, Daniel, Lou, Gary, Janice, Anne, Isaac, Emily, Caitlin, Yitza, Irini, and Pakrob. The music used in this episode was Staraya Kino by Peremotka. You can find more of their stuff on Bandcamp or Spotify. The spelling and links are in the show notes. You'll hear from us again soon. Hey, 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 hey.